Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 65. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Brian Weinstein. He is the CIO, the Chief Investment Officer at Blue Elephant Capital, as well as a co-founder. Now, Blue Elephant's been around for a little while. They have been investing in this space. They are an investment management firm totally focused on the lending space. And Brian has a fascinating background coming out of BlackRock for many years and wanted to get him on the show to talk about what he's hearing from investors and also his perspective on the news and how he feels this is going to impact his business and the industry going forward. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's just start by um, giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, where your career has gone up to this point. Sure. Well, currently, I am a co-founder of Blue Elephant Capital Management and the CIO. Uh, we are a, a direct lending uh, fund or family of funds. Part of that is marketplace and part of that is, is different. We can talk about that later. Uh, as far as my career, I was, as I say, born and raised at BlackRock. I spent 17 years there. When I was a small firm, about 150 people to uh, 13,000 when I left um, in the middle of 2014. And before I left, I ran uh, institutional fixed income. So I got to oversee about $300 billion of assets and and, uh, and really be the lead asset allocator um, over a pretty uh, significant fixed income uh, uh, portfolio, and that's really where I, uh, I cut my teeth anywhere. I was there from an intern, uh, started an inflation business, got to run a global business, got to move to London, and then run the bigger business before I before I decided to go and, and do something out on my own. That's really interesting because, you know, I mean, BlackRock, I mean, I think they're now considered the world's largest asset manager. And when you joined, I'm sure they were, you know, 140 people. I imagine they, they had just a tiny fraction of the assets that, uh, that they have today. Yeah. No, no one knew who they were. I used to have to explain to people that we weren't, you know, <laughs> we weren't Blackstone and why I didn't go to, why I didn't go to, uh, to an investment bank. So obviously times have, uh, have changed. Right. Indeed they have. Everyone knows their name now. Okay, so then um, let's just talk a, a little bit about um, Blue Elephant. What what kind of things your sort of your investment philosophy and what how you invest uh, your clients' money. Yeah, um, you know the, the partners here. If you look at the way we founded the, the firm, are uh, I'm from the buy side, obviously BlackRock and, and two other partners are from the, the sell side. And we've really gotten to watch two really distinct things happen. Obviously, everyone knows the story about banks, right? Banks being regulated, uh, banks being you know kind of disintermediated and kind of taken apart from the inside and made uncompetitive in some ways. So I won't tell that story. I think uh, people generally know it. On my side, on the asset manager side, you know, I got to see a lot of what I call the commoditization of fixed income. In other words, when I started fixed income, it was hard to trade. Most people didn't really know what it was. There was certainly no ETFs. Uh, you could, uh, you know, you could you could trade it in mutual fund form, but it was considered illiquid. And as liquidity came into the space, it yields and then central banks came in and 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 sovereign wealth funds and you know they've driven yields to effectively zero or negative everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you know, fixed income is now liquid, but but has very little value. So when we looked around at the world and said, you know, well, people need fixed income. You need a product that gives you gives you real income, and you combine that with the bank opportunity, you know, with the bank stepping away in certain places, you know, we really approached the the direct lending. 
space here with with the view that that there are lots of ways to create income so long as you don't mind having some illiquidity that goes along with that. And so the way we approach the space is the same way I would approach my BlackRock fixed income portfolio, right? When you run a couple hundred billion of fixed income, you can't trade it around. What you buy, you, you have to you have to assume at some point you will own and it will, it will you'll be stuck owning it because right. the markets tend to seize. So basically, I have a long-term view on the economy. I have a view of where we're going. That directs kind of our, our diligence. We look for loans of certain quality at certain times. We will go anywhere in quality. Right now, we're focused more higher in quality. And, uh, and, and we'll basically build a portfolio that will that we see as, as being able to survive the next business cycle because you're going to hold these loans for, you know, on average around two years. And then we'll re, you know, direct our reinvest towards whatever the, that, as the view changes, we'll, we'll, we'll change our asset allocation as time goes on and with the cash flow that the bonds themselves create. Okay. So then do you have, do you have multiple funds then? Can you explain sort of, is there a different approach with different funds? How, how does it work? Yeah, we have two funds. The, the original fund, the Blue Elephant Consumer Fund, is uh, really focused. Uh, it's, it's really entirely for onshore investors. It's considered for tax purposes a lender, not to get technically boring, um, but, um, but but that's, that's the truth. It has and it has leverage. And the uh, our second fund is called the Blue Elephant Peer Peer Income Fund. That fund is for offshore and type IRA type investors. And at the moment, it has no leverage, and it uh, it is not uh, considered a lender. So that's why it's appropriate for uh, for for those guys. It, it has a similar asset mix to our consumer fund, but it does not have uh, any leverage applied to it. So slightly different risk profiles, uh, but similar, but but the same underlying philosophy. Right. Okay. And so and so, what? How much leverage do you have on the other fund? So our fund, it's an interesting question. So we can run anywhere from zero to three times levered. Yep. We've run as high last year. We got into the actually high twos. We, had, we came pretty close to maxing that out. We've brought our leverage down. Our leverage ratio for last month was, uh, was under one and a quarter. Wow. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have, we are running at the lower end of our, of our historical uh, leverage on, on, on purpose as, as I think people are starting to see. You know the risks in the space have started to, um, I think, be skewed against us. That's changing again, but but we brought down our leverage over the last kind of year and a half on on purpose. So you you made the decision, you know, it sounds like a while ago to start bringing that leverage down. Was that was that due to, to macroeconomic conditions that you saw, or, or what? Yeah, I think there's there's two pieces to it. One is certainly macro. Um, we believe that we're later in the cycle than than most people do. Although it's become a more, I think, a bit more of a common view over the last kind of six months. Uh, we had that view a while back, and you can see it in the in the you know part of the deterioration in credit. in more broadly, I think, is is just macroeconomic. The second, and this is this is more topical, is is as you can see with some of the more recent noise in the market. I think there had been too much focus on growth at any cost, mm-hmm. and our view was that that was going to impact the ability of, of some platforms to make quality loans. And, and again, now that's shifted too. So we brought down leverage for, for both reasons. Uh, Risk-reward, I think, it just generally turned against marketplace loans for kind of a period of, of basically the last year. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's segue into that. We, I know that uh, people are still very interested in uh, in what you've got to say about uh, you know you you are deploying capital. I mean, Lending Club is one of the platforms that you have deployed capital to. Correct. 
actually, interestingly, we have we have looked a lot at Lending Club, and we have Prosper loans in our portfolio, uh, but we do not have any exposure uh, to Lending Club, though we know them well, and it okay. was not because of any prediction. Like we actually think that their loan quality is, is very similar. We just happen to have uh, have gotten better access uh, historically from from Prosper, but but um, but certainly would not have predicted um, you know Lending Club to have any problems like they've had. Right. Okay. Okay. So that that makes sense. So then you are. You know, I'd, I'd obviously like to get your take on the Lending Club news and what you feel like it means for Lending Club and as well as the industry more broadly. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. And listen, I'll caveat it by saying I'm going to assume that you know we we, we might not know all the details, but that there was no deeper fraud or touching of the data, or you know you know no more kind of benefiting one investor purposely over another. Um, obviously, those things are game changers. So if we just kind of keep in mind that you know what what we know, I think what's interesting is that it just it, it it's a culmination. And again, I wouldn't have predicted this culminating in this way. I think it's the culmination of focus on on growth as opposed to loan quality. So, you know, my take on it is that up until the moment that this happened, things were changing, right? People already noticed that, you know, the more volume that some of these marketplace lenders did, the worse the quality was getting, right? That that it was hurting the investor. I think we, you know, most people who are, you know, who know the industry know that there are some issues with, you know, disclosure or, or too many, you know, relationships that exist that, that should not. I and mean, then we've tried very hard and have many, our policies are, we have no personal investments that conflict in any way with our, you know, with, with our investors because we're, we're fiduciaries at BlackRock. You know, if I learned nothing else, it's that when you touch someone else's money, if they have any question about your motivation, um, they're not, you know, they're going to take, they're going to take that, that, that back. So, so, you know, you have to be a fiduciary above all else. And I think what the Lending Club News highlights is that, you know, if you're going to be a lender, raising capital and the ability to raise capital is fantastic. But if you can't deploy that capital into quality loans, you won't, you won't survive. And so I think, as I said, if you look at the, the last couple of months, what have Lending Club and Prosper been doing and others, they've been tightening their models. They've been increasing the lending rate. And especially in Prosper's case, they've been doing less volume. Capital had become much harder to come by. And of course, the Lending Club news kind of really drove all those points home and, and, and caused more capital to flee, which is not a good thing. And, and I don't think it'll, you know, I don't, again, I don't think it'll last forever. But what it means is we're refocused these lenders on lending. And, and I think it calls into question the broader business model. Should they have skin in the game? Should they own some of the loans? Um, we can go into that later. But in my mind, the, the, the tide is completely turned from one in which I was afraid to invest in marketplace loans, you know, since the middle of last year to one where I'm actually excited. Huh. Because in my mind, if Lending Club and Prosper are going to survive, they have only one way to do that. And that is to show people that they can continue to make loans that perform, service those loans properly, which is something that I also think has gotten lost uh, in some of the noise, and really treat their loan investors, which is really the capital driving the firm, as their clients, as opposed to you know maximizing volume. So you know, it, to me, it's, it, it, this had to happen. I wouldn't have wanted it to happen this way. But, but now the focus is back on making loans again, and that is what these companies actually do. So when you say it had to happen, can you just, what, what do you mean exactly? Do you mean what had to happen was more of a, you know, a movement away from growth, uh, you know, the total focus on growth? What, what do you mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, listen, these companies, if they, if they play their cards right, have, have huge room to grow, right? I mean, you can give you, and give you all the stats around what percentage of, of consumer credit they represent, and it's, you know, basically nothing. So, you know, my point is that they shouldn't grow, or that they, you know, my point is that they shouldn't grow, that they won't grow. But, 
you know, if your goal is simply to double in size every year because that's just going to maximize your shareholder value, you're just missing some bigger picture things, which is you're going to make the same mistakes banks make, which is you'll make your most loans at the lowest possible rate at the worst point in the credit cycle. That's just, you know, how a careless lender would behave because, again, they're focusing on volume as opposed to future volume. So, you know, if, if all of a sudden you do, let's say that, you know, let's say that Lending Club and Prosper did $5 billion of loans each in this month, which would obviously you know, be five times the biggest month that we've ever seen. It would look great for the moment, but if half those loans defaulted, then they would never get to make another loan at some point, <laughs> right? right? So there's a, there's the, 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 the focus needs to be, what's my sustainable loan growth? And that number changes, right, as the credit cycle changes. And, and, and there was just too much focus on let's double, let's double, let's double. And you can see it in... You know, the 2000, the second half of 2015 will be the, the worst vintage that, that I think Lending Club or Prosper will underwrite because, because the rates were too low and the credit models were just a little bit too, too lax. And again, that was going to jeopardize their ability at some point in the future to survive. But now that we've completely switched that, I, I do think they have a chance again to prove that they can make, you know, tighter, you know, t- have a tighter credit process and, and have a better loan kind of outcome for their capital, which again is the, the buyers of the loans. But but again, all the pieces were in place for for that to happen. Lending Club and Prosper had raised rates, you know, each two or three times since December. Mm-hmm. So it was already starting. They had started to understand the problem. And again, you know, this is a very stark reminder that capital is not always easy to come by. And and so I think it will cause them to re, to revisit a lot of the way they approach their uh, their loan buyers. Right, right. That makes sense. So, so then I, I imagine uh, over the last you know ten days, I mean, we're recording this on May eighteenth, so it has actually been nine days, I guess, since the since the big news from Lending Club. And I imagine you've heard from some of your investors that may get nervous or whatever. What? So, I guess the question is, what have you been hearing, uh, and what are you telling your investors? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we're in some ways, you know, lucky that we've been out telling a story about being cautious around the space. So the first communication I put out to our investors, you know, once we had all the, the facts was just what I told you, which is we've been waiting for a moment where the, where the winds kind of turned from against us, where I thought, you know, volume was the focus to where the wind was at our backs, where I thought underwriting was the focus. And I think this is one of those moments. So my communication to our investors was, you know, listen, there's, this, there's investors who, you know, run away when there's uh, an issue because, you know, you know, fear is, is, is certainly an, an easy, uh, an easy emotion to follow. But if you've been telling the right story and you, you, you know, you've minimized your exposure, lowered your leverage, kind of have the right call, this is the moment you've been waiting for, kind of like a call to arms. So for, we have a lot of investors that have been waiting in the woodwork, kind of, you know, knowing that we have not been as, you know, we've, we've done fine, but our return, we've lowered our returns purposefully um, by bringing down leverage. But the point is, on a, on a forward basis, I think there's a lot of reason to be bullish uh, as a loan buyer today versus, uh, you know, versus, you know, again, I'm not sure if May 8th is the right date, but, but I think really <laughs> things have started to turn starting in, uh, in you know, in, in February with, uh, with the most recent uh, increases in, in pricing. So my communication was, listen, there's a lot of news out there. You know, we have no exposure to Lending Club, which, again, makes us look smart, but I'm not worried about the lending club loans you know, in particular, but, but our broad view that we've minimized our exposure when rates were too low 
you know, tells you we know we, we kind of have the right view on the space, and then now that now things are changing. So, you know, investors on our side handled it well. I think away from us, where people have been kind of rah rah, you know, cheerleading for the space and telling you they can grow forever, you have more questions to answer. Right. So I think it will slow down capital raising. Any of these big institutions that was looking at the, that were looking at the space, I think will will have more questions. And obviously, the lending hub name itself, you know, they're going to have to figure out a way to uh, to, to regain the, the trust in the in in that name and 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 you know, get through all these investigations which will slow things down as well. Right. So would you consider invest, investing in Lending Club at some point in the future? Let's, let's just assume that the Department of Justice, the SEC investigations that are happening, they don't uncover anything else other than what we, we already know. What, what are your thoughts on, on Lending Club as, you know, as an originator? Yeah, listen, I, I totally would. Uh, again, assuming all those things you said were, were true, right? Again, my job is as a fiduciary. So if there's any question out there about, you know, what, you know, what, what they've done with the data, I think you have to hold off. But once it's clear that, that, that it's, you know, a clean situation, uh, again, in my view, I'm supposed to be almost blind to the underwriter, right? The way we model these loans is if you gave me a thousand loans and didn't tell me who underwrote them, but gave me the full credit file, I can pull out the ones we want to buy and, mm-hmm. and the price we want to pay for them, right? So remember, as an institution, as opposed to some of the factional buyers, we don't really have any exposure to the platforms. We have the loans in custody. We have our own backup servicer. Right. So in the in a horrifying scenario where one of these platforms goes down, we're actually we've always been ready for that because it could happen. You never know what's going to happen, right? right? So the whole point is to have a real structure. So yeah, I would buy I would buy lending club loans once I, as a fiduciary, could tell my clients I know that the loan data is is correct, which I assume it is. I would just love a little bit more statement from them saying, you know, 100% it is. Um, but but I would tell again, I've, I think lending club will have a you know a, a problem clearing their name, you know, just you know for a little bit of time, but as far as we're concerned, I think their loans, you know, would be something we would totally look at when, uh, when, when they were, when they were free and clear. Okay. So then let's just talk about Prosper for a little bit. I mean, do you think that, I mean, because, you know, Prosper had a down quarter in the first quarter, the, the first one they've had since the, the new management team uh, took over in early 2013. How do you feel uh, about what Prosper is doing as far as, you know, transparency and as far as some of the issues that were uncovered at Lending Club? Um, how do you feel, how's your confidence in, in Prosper? You know, as, you know, when we've gone back, of course, and asked all the you know, diligence questions we asked again and, and about their audits and everything. And, and again, as far as anyone can tell, they're doing all the right things and no one's touching their, their data and everyone's getting you know, a clean look. You know, listen, I think based on the disclosure that we got from, from Lending Club around conflicts of interest, I think all these platforms are going to have to come clean with the little pieces, you know, that, that, you know, that, that might be conflicting. I'd love to know, like, listen, I think it was yesterday they said that, you know, one of this firm that they, that Lending Club bought a piece in, they had a special deal over a certain amount of defaults they would guarantee, you know, they would give them cash back. Like, yep. in my mind, you, if you want, if you want people to trust you, you can't have side agreements like that, right? Either we're all taking the risk or your shareholders are taking the risk, but we can't have some guys, you know, doing some of each. So, you know, I, I do think that, that this is going to be, uh, again, a good thing over time as, as the industry cleans itself up and starts acting like a finance company slash fiduciary as opposed to, you know, a, you know, a, a Silicon Valley uh, firm. I think there, there are some differences. But, but you know, it, it's an interesting question, right? So three weeks ago, it seemed like Prosper was, you know, going to be way, way behind Lending Club and certainly they, they were from a volume perspective. And then this comes in, can, you know, should Prosper be able to capitalize on this? You'd think so. But but as a again as a loan buyer, I don't really spend that much time 
thinking about it. I want to know who's making the best loans, who's giving me the best data and the best access. And again, we every day we have an API that runs and we can run through Prosper's, uh, you know, the, the loans offered in the active pool and pick out the ones we want. That's a great thing for us. And I'm, I'm very happy to continue to, to do that and actually kind of turn it back on again as, as rates go up and standards get tighter. So, you know, I don't know how they're going to behave as a as a as a firm, it seems to me that since it's clear there's some business model flaws, that they're you know the first person to come out with an announcement on how they fixed it will probably have a a pretty good advantage. But I don't spend too much time you know trying to trying to predict who who that will be. I just want to make sure my investors get the best loans at the right price and maximize their return. Right. Yep. Fair enough. So let's just move beyond Lending Club and Prosper for a second. So who else um, can you share where you have you know where you're deploying capital uh, as far as platforms go? Yeah, totally. So our next, uh, so our, 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 our biggest exposure, though it's down by a huge percentage, our biggest exposure is is, is Prosper. Our second is actually Harmony, which is a, a New Zealand-based uh, consumer lender. Uh-huh. Some very unique things about the environment in New Zealand that attracted us there, and they performed very, very nicely for us. They are our second biggest. They're for anyone not familiar, they're they're very similar in in kind of concept to uh, to Prosper and Lending Club, but in a much smaller market with a lot less competition. So that's that's interesting interesting proposition for us. After that, we have a, a kind of non-marketplace lender called Freedom Financial that mm-hmm. is uh, also doing consumer in a very different way yep. uh, than, than the marketplace guys. A small amount of exposure to funding circle on the on the small business side. And then the most interesting one, the one that's going the most quickly, is a, a lender that we've launched with our own model. You know, they're privately owned, but we, we were the first one to fund them. And uh, it's called Boat Finance. So we found there was a huge shortage of truly quality collateralized lending being done. And the marine, the used marine industry was hurt pretty badly by 08 and the right. death of the community bank sector. Mm-hmm. So we actually have uh, a team that's out uh, making uh, secured loans on used, unused recreational boats with very conservative estimates on the, on the valuation of the collateral that, that, you know, is performed by Wolf for us so far. Mm-hmm. That's the fastest growing part of our book and something that no one else has access to besides us at the moment. Right. No, actually, I met the boat finance guys. It was like 18 months ago and uh, fascinating, uh, Fascinating business. I and mean, so, so just on that, like, I mean, as you say, they were hurt by 0809, considering that, that we're, you know, you said that we're late in the economic cycle. And, and, you know, let's face it, if you're, if, you know, if we hit another recession, I imagine the boat industry will be hit as well. How do you, how do you sort of feel about that? And why are you excited about it? Yeah. Um, well, listen. If that's the view, then certainly there's no reason to think that the boat loans would do worse than unsecured consumer loans, where you have no recourse to anything. True. Right. So there's a couple of interesting facts about about the the marine market. Again, one is that we're not financing new boats; these are used, so the depreciations generally happened. The second is that we are being very conservative, as I said, on the on the rec- on the recovery and the valuation of the collateral. And the guys running the company are kind of experts. They're, they've had 30 years of, indus- of experience in the in the industry. So we're not assuming that you're going to get back 100%, right? You're basically, you know, assume you're going to get a haircut. So basically, you set the rate appropriately, and uh, and, and I would expect that those secured bull loans would, would wildly outperform consumer loans in a recession. It's the guys really doing new boats or being overly optimistic on collateral and recovery where you'll find out that you set your rate too low relative. But since we wrote the model, um, we don't really see any danger of that. And in a recession, if you look at what happened in 08, basically as the economic cycles, you know, get get better and better, 
people start financing these new boats, the larger and larger tickets, and you know you could lose half the value of it. You know, trying to resell it, you know, the next day if it's, if it's like a car, once you drive it off the lot, right. um, it has no you know value. But but a boat, a fiberglass boat that's you know already been out in the water for ten years and you know is seaworthy, has pretty much a terminal value because you throw new engines on it, and uh, and actually it's just as good as a new boat. It's not like a wood boat that that rots. So there's some some pretty interesting facts about that market. And remember, these are titled, they're insured, so it's not like you know, it's not like you're securing it with copy machines that someone can pick up and walk out of their office. I mean, right. you know, the, the the guys that we have doing this are experts in seizing collateral and auctioning collateral. So it's it's operationally intensive, but but I think it's a pretty interesting value proposition. And our goal really is as we get closer to the turn of the business cycle towards another recession, uh, we want to continue to increase our exposure to secured lending as opposed to unsecured lending. Right, right. Okay, so I, I want to talk about due diligence now. You, you know, you worked at BlackRock where you were putting hundreds of billions of dollars to work, and I imagine you had a, a massive team that uh, would you know, would go be conducting due diligence whenever you're putting new money to work. And obviously, at Blue Elephant, you don't have quite, uh, you know, quite that same size. So, what do you do? On the, when you when you're looking for a new platform, say it's Harmony, say it's even Funding Circle or, or whoever, what are the steps you take, and how is it different to what you did at BlackRock? Yeah, listen, you're, you're right. At BlackRock, you have an army of people that you, know, you say, "Hey, go figure this out," and and someone will you know figure figure it out for you. Here, I mean, a couple of things. One, it's a it's a it's an emerging space in a lot of ways. There are a lot of new players that that are not as tight kind of operationally as maybe you'd, you'd want them to be. So you know, the answer is we kind of have to divide up our time. The first thing we'll do is kind of the broad check. So we I have a list. We've we've looked at now just under like like 98 or 99, just under 100 uh, potential lenders, and then wow. you heard the list of. of who we lend through, but we don't do deep due diligence on a hundred. At BlackRock, you might, right? We don't. So you know, a lot of guys will fail the the test in the in the first case, which is, you know, we always ask, what what problem are you solving, right? Is there is there a market? Like, this is all changing now. But before the stock valuations fell, you know, everyone thought they could lend everywhere and they would get you know some kind of VC funding no matter what. So the ideas just weren't all that good, and and that's obviously you know eased off as valuations have fallen. So firstly, you can't just show up and lend, right? Is it underserved by a bank, right? Is there a reason why no one's doing it? Um, is there a big, is it a big enough demographic to, uh, to or a cohort to, to attack? So a lot of guys will, will fail there. And then from there, you get into really two different pieces. One is the credit model. You'll find a lot of guys don't have one, right? So you, you know, you, you call yourself a fintech firm, but you, but you use straight FICO as your as your lending metric. You're probably not gonna, you know, probably not gonna partner with you unless we can use our model instead, guidelines, etc. And then the second part is legal and operational, right? So a lot of guys try to skirt the rules on on, on usury or or you know or kind of you know do regulatory tricks. We we don't want to do that. And then operationally, I mean, you should hear our COO go you know have go through people. You know, everyone assumes making loans the hard part. That's the easy part. Right. It's can you service the loan? Can you recover? And so what we'll find is, you know, the list of people we have serious due diligence uh, needs on is, is is manageable. So at any time we'll be doing deep due diligence on say three to four kind of lenders of various types. Um, but but to your point, yeah, we, we can't do it on everybody because you know we're we're not we're not BlackRock. So I'm sure we do miss things. Like listen, the boat guys actually came to us three different times, and, and honestly, I told them no the first two, and and, and they finally you know, gave me some interesting facts around the lending that they were doing and, and, uh, and convinced me. But, you know, it does take probably some work to get through to us because we do have a, bit, a little bit of a backlog on, on the diligence side, but we can't skimp on it, right? We have to, we, we, want, we want full diligence on anyone that, will, that we approve. 
Mm-hmm. And so is your due diligence process going to change given what we've heard in the last couple of weeks or is it, or are you, do you already feel like it's, it's rock solid? You know, we're always trying to make it better. So I just added to our, to our checklist, you know, this question around, you know, do you have, and we knew these agreements happened. I didn't think they happened at the bigger platforms, but, you know, do you have any agreements that give preferential treatment to one investor over, over another in terms of buying back defaulted loans, you know, things of, of that nature. So we're always trying to make it better. And, and listen, it's, it's really, to, to diligence, fraud is impossible, right? Like, you know, if, if people are, are completely cooking the books and Deloitte and Touche can't see it, or whoever the auditor is, like, you know, that's that's a unique story, but you know, for for a platform that's been through SEC and 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 CFPB, you know, you, and and Cap One, we have we have a we have a warehouse line with Cap One that we can get leverage with. Like they did due diligence on Prosper, so in some ways you get help from from partners in that in that way. A brand new platform that's done nothing. We can actually kind of help control all the processes. So, you know, when you start out with both finance, you don't have the same fears because, you know, you're, you're basically you're basically helping them do all the all the work. Right. It's kind of the medium-sized platforms are the hardest, right? So you have a small loan tape, you have a sum you know, a, 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 a sum process, um, but then you have to go back and vet all the information, and it's hard. So, you know, yes, yeah, so I think if we if we were looking at a, a medium-sized uh, platform that had done some volume that was VC funded, we'd really have to do a deeper dive now probably with legal and maybe even an auditor, you know, to, to make sure there weren't any irregularities in the loan tape, you know, in, in a much deeper way than, than we were doing before. So, yes, this will definitely slow down capital movement in the space, even from someone like us who I think was doing a pretty good job in terms of, of diligence. Right. But you, but your fund personally, you're not like, you're not pulling back from the space, it sounds like. You're still no, you're, you're, you're reinvesting. Have- yeah, we had pulled back from the space. And again, in my mind, again, like putting aside the, the lending club, it'd be very unlikely, right? Because someone, someone's been paying these loans back. So, you know, the idea that the loans were somehow fraudulent is, again, I think is far-fetched. But, you know, to the extent lending club doesn't drop any more bombs on us or, or anyone else, yeah, I think the, the time to get into the loan space as an institutional investor is just much better now because again we can you know the more capital we raise I think the more we can dictate the terms and uh, you know I think I think all these guys are going to want more locked up capital and everyone wants that right but there'll be a price there'll be a price extracted for that for the loan buyer um, and before they had so much capital that as I said they were just making as many loans as they could so yeah we're we're actually getting ready to run back toward the space as opposed to run away from it from the loan side I think from the equity side it's a bit of a difficult question to answer but but again a lot of the bad news you'd have to believe is, is, in, is in the price. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so does that mean you're going to increase your leverage ratio going forward? Yeah, I mean, listen, part of that is, 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 you know, economic cycle sensitive. So I'd say the first thing we're going to do is, is stabilize it. We've really let the leverage ratio fall and it's fallen every month since I would say April or May of last year. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we're going to do is increase our, our reinvest and, and stabilize it. And, uh, and I could, I don't think we'll bring it back to 2.6 times that's more of an economic cycle thing but yeah i think i think given the opportunity and the right and the right terms we could certainly start to bring it up uh somewhat it, it doesn't i don't think make a lot of sense to, to bring it down from here so so things are things are changing again for the better for the for loan investors right right so then let's just final question let's uh Let's just talk about you know, where look into your crystal ball. I know it's a very fluid situation, and uh, you know we don't. You know, we're, as I said, we're recording this when we don't know what might what may come out next week. We obviously have no idea. But where do you see where do you see this the industry, the marketplace lending industry going? I mean, do you see 
you know, massive contraction? Do you see mild contraction? I don't expect you see massive growth anytime soon. Yeah. But what, so where, where, where do you see the industry going uh, for the next 12 months? Yeah, listen, I, I think this is now going to be the time to get to adjust the business models to make them some, some, somewhat more rational. So my view has always been that instead of having a number of behemoths that go public and you know do massive, massive volume, there, I think there'll still be a few over, over now a longer period of time. But I think this breaks down in two ways. One is I think it, 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 there's, there's a certain – I think the, the stigma that technology valuations have put on having a balance sheet um, are going to go away. So I think mm-hmm. having some loans on balance sheet is actually a good thing. In a lot of ways, it gives you cash flow. It means you believe you're underwriting. It has skin in the game. It answers a lot of regulatory questions. So I think you'll see some business model changes. But my view has always been that the second part is there'll be a lot of niche lenders, right? So our goal isn't to go out there and, and raise a $3 billion fund and buy all Prosper loans. I, I think that's a tough business model. Our goal is to go out there and raise a three to $500 million fund and buy some loans from Prosper and Lending Club and those guys, but also a lot of niche players that do some very, very good, unique underwriting. And that means that when the economy turns, you can go out there and say, okay, I want to go, I want to add 10% subprime or 20% subprime to my portfolio. I want to add some small business to my portfolio. But, but I think the way the market, you know, this opens up the door in some ways for a lot of niche players to kind of evolve their business model without feeling like they're missing something, which was always, I think, my view on how this was, was going to turn out. So, you know, I think over the next 12 months, you're going to see some major changes in the, in, in the marketplace model, um, which I think will be generally to the benefit of the, of the loan buyer. And then I do think you'll see an evolution in the, uh, in, in the broad space where um, a lot of these smaller lenders start to get noticed for, for their, their value as, as I said, smaller kind of balance sheet uh, lenders, which I think is an important evolution. But the idea that you can always maximize volume, I think, will fade away and, uh, and be replaced by something a bit more rational. So, you know, again, as you say, it's hard to predict massive growth in the space. But I think in some ways it actually saves the space because it, it, it means that as loan performance picks back up and we keep the focus on, on, on the underwriting, that there's actually a decent chance for rational growth and, and, and solid business model changes. And that's a, that's a good thing, even for the equity investors over, over longer periods of time. Right. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, I'll have to let you go, but uh, I really appreciate hearing your thoughts. It's great to, uh, great to kind of to catch up and find, uh, find out from someone who's uh, managing a lot of money in the space and what their thoughts are. So thanks for coming on, Brian. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'll talk again. Hopefully uh, there's no more bad news. <laughs> yeah, let's fingers crossed. Okay. See ya. <laughs> thanks. Bye. I want to pick up on Brian's last point there and just expand on a little bit because something I've been thinking about as well, that maybe this incident, while while terrible for Lending Club and uh, and for Renault Laplanche, it may end up being in the long run a good thing for the industry. And the reason being is that there has been this fascination, this obsession almost with uh, with growth, where we got to keep growing at these double digit or even triple digit percentages every year. And I think that whole idea has just gone out the window now. It is simply not going to be the focus. The focus now is on really building a, a business that's, that can sustain um, themselves, sustain itself for the long haul and really focusing on underwriting and doing what is necessary, doing what is important to build a, a long-term sustainable business. So I hope that is what actually comes out of all this. I think it very well could be. And I think the industry will be much stronger in the long run for it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.